This nice from Trucker's Weather Forecast. The service is WRBA and next to Virginia. And we are at uh, 19 to the hour. So let's do this. We'll come back with some regional weather here in a little bit. Dear Kitchen Display Center. Hello? Anybody hear me? All right, you know. Mm-hmm. Let's do this. Oh, man. They haven't changed that jingle yet. <laughs> Stereophonic. What is that? <laughs> Hello, Richmond. Again. The best personalities, like Alden Aero. I would suggest you do not try this with your records. Now, who's this on the phone? Thomas. Thomas what? Haskins. Thomas, where are you from? What do you want to hear tonight? 345-WRXL. Because good friends share. You are listening to live radio, AM 1140, WRVA Richmond. So the next time you turn on the radio, it'll make you happy. Richmond's number one. Number one. We'll make yeah, it man. a psychedelic 60s. <laughs> WDC operates at a power of 100 watts from an antenna located high atop the Fine Arts Building, located on the University of Richmond campus. Tune in and turn on the time tunnel. We will be back on the air soon and can continue to take your request at 345-0106. It's Y101, Richmond's new rock. Drugs are bad. Drugs are bad. I'm just kidding. What we're going to do right here is yeah. go back. We're going to go back. <laughs> Way back. Oh, yeah, back why not? The time. How far back? When the only people that existed were troglodytes. We now conclude our broadcast day, but please join us at 6 a.m. tomorrow morning for another day of your favorite music on The Address of the Stars. Let's take the average caveman at home, listening to his stereo.
had in my head, and I do have in my head, that there's this big difference between me, you know, I'm, I'm 45 years old. John's, I guess, in his, probably in his 70s. I think he's roughly my parents' age. Um, and I've, in my head, there's this big gap between how I grew up and how my parents grew up and how John grew up. Um, and I read Radio Ingleside and realized that it's really not that much difference. I had a very fortunate childhood. Uh, my parents uh, gave my siblings and I a, a really great life. And uh, I grew up in a neighborhood where we knew our neighbors and we played in the alleyways behind the house with the neighborhood kids. And it was very idyllic. And that was kind of similar to John's upbringing in Emporia. Um, he had some more challenges as he got older than I did, for, fortunately, knock on wood. Um, but the similarities are definitely there. So if you're a a person that grew up in central Virginia um, in the, you know, I would say like 1950s to 1980s, I, you'll find something to identify with in Radio Ingleside. It's not just a book about radio. I encourage you to check it out. But rather than me prattling on about John, I'll let John prattle on about John. And we'll start with the uh, starting point I have with all of these nice people. Do you remember your first air shift? Yeah, I, I was... Um I grew up in Emporia, Virginia, mm-hmm. on the North Carolina line in Southside, Virginia, and I had—I just had this thing about radio. I was—I was about thirteen years old, and I wanted to get on the air, and so I ordered a um, one of these night kits that were sold on uh, in magazines. Mm-hmm. And I ordered one. It was an AM broadcaster. And my uncle, who was uh, sort of a leading-edge geek, put the thing together for me. And I hung a big quarter-wave antenna out the backyard. (laughs) And the kids at at the high school were picking me up at the Friday night football game. And, man, I was in heaven. (laughs) And... Uh, and then as this went on for about a week, and then the local radio station owner, Will Stone, heard me yeah. on a harmonic on the on the on his station's frequency. Oh no! Oh yeah, they went off the air. So they were daytime. WEVA was was a daytime station. Went off at night, and he picked me up. <laughs> <laughs> on his frequency. Oh wow! And he and he knew and like I was using my name and everything. And he he gave me a call at home that night and uh, scared the crap out of me. But <laughs> he 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 told me he said, uh, uh, "You really into this?" And I said, "Yeah." He said, "Is that what you want to do?" And I said, "Yes, sir." And he said, "Well, why don't you come up here?" after school next week and we'll talk about it because I've been thinking about hiring a high school kid, high school boy, just like you to do, uh, weekends, you know, weekend afternoons. Sure. And I think that was the, uh, I don't think I have ever been more excited in my life Mm. than I was when he said that because he opened that door and had he not done that, I would have probably never gotten in the business. Never, you know. Why do you say so that? That's what, where, what, uh, what do you and, think? I, and I remember that like yesterday, and I cannot believe all these years have gone by. But that's exactly how it started. That's that's where everything started with me. Now, why do you think if you hadn't have gotten that call, why do you think you never would have gotten into the business? 
Well, my father didn't think radio was a real job, mm. you know? Uh, it was like, a, you got to remember, this is 1959, 1960. It was a different world. Sure. And uh, he could not believe that anybody would get paid for having fun on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> he just didn't believe it. And he kept insisting that I get a part-time job, which I did at a drugstore. And... Uh, and he was, and I had a paper route, and I had to make my own money. And and when I came home and told him I was going to go to work at the radio station, he could not believe that uh, <laughs> Will Stone was going to actually pay me. And he gave me the grief throughout my whole high school about it. You know, he didn't want me working there. Really? So, but my mother, my mother was my savior, and uh, she. She really ran the house. I mean, you know, so uh, it, it was it was through her. It was through her that I got to do what I wanted to do because yeah. she was uh, a big believer in the arts, and she thought it was very important to do what you wanted to do, and not do anything for the money, but do it because you love it. Right. And and, uh, and you know, she was absolutely right. So that's where it all started. And I went off to school, and I I helped I helped a junior college start their campus radio station. Oh, no kidding! And then, yeah, and then I got up to uh, I transferred up to American University. I had terrible grades in high school, <laughs> probably because of goofing off on the radio. Of course. And uh, yeah, you know. And uh, but I, I got my grades up in junior college and, and transferred after two years to American U, majored in journalism with a minor in broadcasting. And um, I got I got on as an NBC News uh, intern, then a trainee. And that's what really did it for me, because I was working my way. Right. And uh and uh they they paid for for the last year or I I wouldn't have been able to finish. I'd have had to drop out and and you know, go to work somewhere and save some money. Let's but, uh, let's re rewind for a second because the days of a high school kid getting a job on a radio station are long since gone, and you're the second person that I've spoken to who that's exactly how their career started was doing radio uh, in high school, Tim Timberlake being the other one. Yeah. What? Yeah, and Sam. Yeah. yeah. We, we had similar backgrounds, very similar. It really, it, it really is. It's funny have, having talked to him and now talking to you. Uh, they are very similar. Uh, what? What if anything did being on the radio in high school do to or for your social status? I was a very shy kid. I was a skinny kid. I was very self-conscious. Mm. I had no confidence. <laughs> I, I, uh, and I, and radio appealed to me because of its anonymity. And I, I don't think I was the first kid. Tim's another one, uh, just like me, I think at the time. And radio gave me a voice mm. And it, and it allowed me to hide myself on the radio, <laughs> and 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 really seriously, I mean, yeah. no, yeah, I, I, I could I, be an, I, I could be anonymous. I didn't have anybody watching me. I wasn't yep. self conscious or anything. Yep, and I could just be me, and everything came out. 
and uh, and I just fell in love with it. I really did. I used to stay up at night listening to the big 50,000-watt stations out of the Northeast, WBZ, mm-hmm. KBW out of Buffalo, you know, and then Chicago, WALS, and all these stations. And I, and I listened to these guys, and I just said, man, that's what I want to do, you know? And... Uh, that's what happened. It, I, uh, and, it, and, and, I, and I had grown up uh, pretty much by myself. My sisters were eight and ten years older than I was. Mm. So I didn't, have, I didn't have too many playmates around right. when I was real little. And so I, and my mother always said that's, that's what led to the imaginary playmates, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So I sort of feel, I sort of created my own little theater of mine in my little head. And, uh, and I don't know, I guess that's where all this came from. But, uh, well, I was, I was, I I was laughing earlier because I, I I identify with exactly what you were saying. That was a a laugh of recognition in that the, the anonymity of just being a faceless voice. And, and like you said, being able to, you know, say, say what you thought as opposed to what, other people thought you should say or what you thought other people should think you should say, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I was always the type of kid. I had very good antenna and I, I sort of edited myself to fit the environment I was in. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I, I, yep. uh, when I was around people, my own age or older, I could tell if they were interested in what I was saying. And if they weren't, I'd shut up and move on to something that piqued their interest, <laughs> which probably wasn't what I wanted to talk about. But right. I, I learned how to do that, and uh, it was a it was a hard habit to break. It just takes a lot of confidence in yourself, you know. Yeah. And I didn't have any. I yeah. didn't. I had an incredible inferiority complex. I had no confidence. And I think radio, even in those early years, in the late 50s and early 60s, gave me that. And um, I wouldn't take anything for it. I really wouldn't. It was, it was, uh, I had a great time growing up. It was a great town. When I got to NBC, my supervisor was a guy named George Cheeley, who ran the news desk there in Washington, in the Washington Bureau which was located at WRC up on Nebraska Avenue. And they're still there. I think they moved out for a time, but they're back on Nebraska Avenue and have been for a while. Anyway, after he interviewed me and wanted to know where I grew up in the neighborhood and all this kind of stuff, and he looked at me very seriously and he said, you know what? It sounds like you grew up in a Norman Rockwell painting. <laughs> and I said, you know, that, that's the most apt description of the neighborhood I grew up in that I have ever heard. And I've never forgotten him telling me that um, because it was. it was. It was great. You just don't have that anymore. People are so transient, you know. And, I mean, I've lived next door to people for four or five years and never even knew who they were, yeah. you know? Yeah. So uh, it, I, I think small towns do that for you. And, and it's, uh, you know, growing up in a village has been overused metaphor, but it's true. And it certainly was in those days. And, um, I don't know. I don't know what would have happened to me if I, if I'd grown up anywhere else, it was a great place to grow up, but great people there. 
and uh, well, I mean, talk about gave, uh, talk about going from yeah, go z- from zero to one hundred, though. From high school to the end of college, you go from AM radio in your bedroom to NBC radio, or where was it? NBC television. It was both. Uh, okay. Uh, they, they owned and operated stations then. They had an AM and an FM and uh, owned and operated television station. Uh, they operated separately from the network, uh, or rather the network ran the owned and operated station. Right. That's how that worked. Uh, but they were separate. They had separate newsrooms. Um but I was I I went to work as a network news trainee, and and uh, it was it was one of the greatest experiences I have ever had in my life. Were you were you and, mentally prepared for that transition, or did that just completely blow your mind? Well, the first couple of days when you, when you walk around and you see people that you've grown up looking at on television, yeah. It just kind of does blow your mind, you know. You just you you pinch yourself because you can't believe you're really sitting there talking to the likes of David Brinkley. I mean, it wow. just you can't believe they're there, and I didn't. But what you soon what I soon found out was these people uh, who worked there, and and most of them, I mean, people like John Chancellor. These these were just these were stars to me, you know. But it was really about news with them. Mm. Television was just something they had to do <laughs> in order to do what they wanted to do. Yeah, they didn't think of they. They never thought of it as entertainment business like they do now. Right. I mean, that's why a lot of people go into television because they want to be famous. Uh, and I know Brinkley because I had long talks with Brinkley, and he used to tell me all the time about how he hated it. He hated television wow. because you had no privacy. He uh-huh. was a he was a big he was a big carpenter. He built things. As a matter of fact, he built a desk in the studio that he used on the Huntley Brinkley report. That mm. was his he he built that. And <laughs> he said he always longed to go to the hardware store where he where he he lived nearby. I think it was McLean, somewhere like that. And uh and then not be an event, you know? Yeah. <laughs> he, he said, I, I would love to be able to go buy a bag of nails without it being about me, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I never forgot that. And, and I think that's, that was part of the, my love of radio. I had chances to go into television and I almost did at one point. Um, but I didn't, and I never regretted not doing it at the time. I really didn't. Um, RVA, uh, Laris, which owned RVA, the big tobacco company in Richmond, they own WRVA Television, which is now WWBT Television. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had, uh, they operated the radio station and the radio station and the television station completely separate. Separate locations. They weren't even co-located. Uh, we were uh, we were originally in the hotel Richmond when I got there, right. and Channel Twelve was on the south side of the city, and they had what they call um, Choice Day. I've forgotten exactly what Tansy called it, 
But you had to make your decision. Did you want to go with television? Oh, interesting. Or did you want to stay? Oh, yeah. You want to stay with radio. Huh. This was your only chance. <laughs> because, really, I mean, if you stayed, you were there. You were dedicated, and, yeah. And, and you were not going to jump, you know, because they'd sign you to a contract exclusivity and you had to move 90 miles outside of the market to work anywhere else. Wow. And yeah. I, I have no doubt they would enforce it. <laughs> so guys like John Wilson, who had been long on WRVA, he took the plunge and went to television. And he was very, very successful mm. at it. As a matter of fact, it was Wilson who almost lured me down to Portsmouth and WAVY TV. Mm. I almost went, but I didn't. After talking to my dad, who told me, he said, you know, you should always take the sure thing when you can mm. and not the good thing. Yeah. He said, television is a good thing, but for you, the sure thing is staying with that radio station. Right. So and, uh, what, what was the transition? And, 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 Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. What was the transition from NBC to RVA. Were you were you a full time employee at NBC at any point, or were you? It was that purely a learning experience for you? No, it was truly a learning experience, and I went there every day. I put in eight, nine, ten, twelve hour days sometimes because I didn't want to leave. I didn't yeah. want to miss anything. And uh, I don't know how familiar you are. This is before your time, I'm sure. But 1968 was a hell of a year. There was yeah. a lot of stuff that happened for sure. And to be there, I discovered what I think all news people eventually discover. It's this yearning to be where things are happening. Mm. You, you want to be there. And when the riots broke out in Washington, after Dr. King was assassinated in Memphis, and it occurred all over the country, but D.C. went absolutely crazy. And I remember Bob Garofsky telling me it was like going down. It was like he and he'd been tours in Vietnam as a war correspondent. And he said it was like it was like being in in, in Vietnam. It was like a firefight going wow. downtown. But I wanted to be there, and they wouldn't let me go because it was really. I mean, it was really dangerous, and it wouldn't let me go. But I still didn't want to leave. I just hung around the news desk. Yeah, I just wanted to be there. Yeah. You know, and. And when I left, they gave me all these. I got great recommendations, which I probably could never have lived up to. <laughs> I'm sure I didn't. But uh, they were all great people. And uh, I left, and I, I tried to get a job at Channel 12. And uh, was Bob Griggs was the program director. He was doing the Salo Bob thing on Channel 12. Oh, no days. kidding. Yeah. Yeah, and he was uh, he was the program director, and I went to see him. He was very nice, um, and he told me to come over for an interview. So I came over there, and I went there, and he didn't have anything for me. Hmm. But he said you might you might go up uh, on Church Hill to see uh, see WRVA and talk to Joe Weeks, the news director. Okay. So I did, and when I walked in that place and I walked in that newsroom, I knew it's where I had to be, just wow. walking in there. You know, I could smell it, I could feel it, I could hear it. It was it was Mecca to me, 
And he sent me down to the Virginia General Assembly, uh, the model General Assembly, they called it, was meeting at the state capitol. And he gave me a tape machine and sent me down there to cover the uh, model general. As a student governor was giving his state of the state speech. Huh. And, and Joe sent me down there to cover it and uh, to file a piece for the new news that day. And, uh, oh, so he, he threw you right into the fire then. Oh, yeah. He <laughs> put me right in it. And uh, and I had no time to be nervous, which yeah. is what was great about it. So I, I went down and I covered it and uh, RVA had an engineer down at the Capitol that day. And they fed my piece back up and I, I went on the air and then Weeks told me to come back up there and I did. And Alden Aro was his boss in those days. The uh, news department was under the program department. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I went to see Aero, and he virtually hired me that day. Wow. He wanted to check out some references and stuff, but he called me in my hometown the next, I think, two days later and uh, told me I had the job if I wanted it. And I said, absolutely. So why did you? he He even lined up places for me to go to find a place to live. Wow. He's that kind of guy. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So why Richmond? Why didn't you stick with D.C.? Well, uh, my father was ill at the time. He was mm. very sick. And um, he died. Uh, he, he lived until uh, he was 67 and died of a, uh, lung, a fungus condition on his lung oh. from pigeons he had raised when he was a kid a boy and uh it was terminal wow and uh and and i didn't want to go that far away yeah and and uh, i I couldn't go far away and also there wasn't any other station that compared Mm. with wrva in virginia except north of the mason dixon line up from dc up and uh I had gotten on with WRC, the NBC-owned station there, as a uh, as a stringer for their news department covering the state capitol. Uh, that came on pretty quick, so I I was doing pretty good, and I had maintained uh, ties with the network. I knew all the guys, and I got on with the Second Sunday Crew, which was a uh, a world-class radio documentary series. Hmm. And uh, I, I, I did several, several of those. And um, it was just, a, it was just a good fit. It was, Tansy was building, was building something there and, and nobody got hired there that you didn't spend at least an hour with him before you were hired. Right. And, uh, right. And I learned a lot about him. He was, uh, he had majored in journalism at the University of Florida. And uh, uh, he was the only general manager that RVA ever had when I worked there, as long as I worked there, who had come up through news. Oh. All the other people were salespeople. Yeah. He was not. Hmm. And he ran the place, he ran the place like it was a news station. And he knew, he knew what it took. It took a lot of money, and it took a lot of people, and he built a hell of a team. And I, I, I've i had a lot of time to think about it, 
And I think that was the absolute key to the station's success, is that he built this wonderful team of people. Nobody wanted to leave. We couldn't wait to go to work every day. It was so exciting. And he backed us up. He gave us the tools we needed to do what we wanted to do. He gave us the confidence. He was never looking over our shoulder all the time. He was a hands-on guy, and he'd drive you nuts if you were running the, <laughs> running the place, which I did. And he was always, but he it was because he wanted us to be the best. And he, he was always pushing. More was never enough. You know, he would come in every day with legal pads filled with ideas and stuff. And uh, the guy was just into it. And he molded that place and built it. And uh, and it was just a phenomenal place to work. Nobody left. That was the amazing thing to me. He yeah. just stayed there, yeah. you know, because you couldn't do better. You couldn't find a better place to work. Well, and that and, and that's... the station was it was just enormously successful, and the more successful it became, you know, the better we all did. And uh, I think that's the that's the key to any organization. I think is is the, the, the cohesiveness of the team, the, the smooth functioning of a team is the key to everything. I don't care what the business is. I, I, I really believe that. I think that's, that's very true. So if, if it was Tansy... a great place and it, it, and it lasted for, we had, as Alden and I used to say, we had a hell of a good ride. We really <laughs> did. So if Tansy was kind of the beating heart behind the scenes, would it be safe to say that Alden was the, you know, the, the, the beating heart of the, the public facing side? Because that's, that's the oh, part yeah. that I oh, knew yeah. and grew up with, obviously. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He was, uh, he, he was a big believer in what he called casework. Uh, and he, re- he really worked at it. He, he'd go out sometimes every night giving talks, meeting people, hmm. representing the radio station. He showed up, he was everywhere. And, uh, he, when I was, when I was, uh, meeting with him about the job, he took me down to Fifth Street between Miller Roads and Tallheimer's, so and we just sat there. Huh. And he said, you're probably going to see some of your people from my hometown. And I did, because everybody <laughs> went to Miller Roads and Tallheimer's. That's All right. the old ladies, my dad used to say, old ladies don't die. You just go to Miller Roads and Tallheimer's, <laughs> which, which, which was true. Yeah, it really was. And 100%. we sat there, and he said, and he sat there, and, and uh, he said, this is your audience. Yeah. Yeah, these, these these are your customers right here, and uh, yeah, he was he was the public face of it. I think John was the idea guy. Though mm. Alden came up with fantastic, fantastic promotions that had a public service ring to them, like the shoe fund. Yeah, and uh, oh my God, a crippled children's hospital fund, renovating the Carillon. Maymont Park. Oh, wow. uh, you just go on and on and on. And but my favorite was the uh, Nelson County Car Caravan who put together after Hurricane Camille yeah. just devastated Nelson County. And he had this idea. He just hatched it in his brain to get all the car dealers in Richmond to donate automobiles that passed inspection. 
and we were going to take them up there and give them away to flood victims who wow. lost everything they had. Wow. And we got, I think it was three or four new car carrier loads of automobiles, all inspected, all with good tires, everything. And I rode with them to Nelson County, and we gave those cars away. It was the most unbelievable thing I have ever experienced, wow. really. Yeah. I'll never forget the faces of those people when he gave them the keys. Mm. It was just, it was, you had to be there. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, that's how, that's how he did it. I mean, he, it was all about people and meeting them and, and doing what he could for them. And he did. He walked the walk and he talked the talk. And, and, uh, he was absolutely the crown jewel of that radio station. He and John Tansy were just unbelievable. And I think the, uh, the great idea was when they, because Alton was getting on up there. He was, um, when I got there, he'd been on the air doing mornings since 1956. Holy cow. Yeah. John Tansy put him on the, in the morning in 1956. Wow. And he, and he never, he never took him off. I mean, he, <laughs> that's where he stayed. So and, and that was it. Alden was his guy, and and he stayed there, and he built this incredible audience. His cum was just unbelievable. It was just, I mean, we had. Uh, I'll tell you this tale: when Bob Jones had taken over for John Tansy when John semi retired, but he did have the good sense to keep John on as a uh, full time consultant. And uh, but anyway. I, I got this call when I was news director once about, uh, or maybe I was the operations manager. I think that was it. And I got a call from this religious uh, program distributor who wanted to uh, put uh, a religious show in Morning Drive on the air on RVA. And they said, I think the line they used was, well, Mr. Harding, we have God on our side. And I said something like, I understand that, but we have God on the air right now. And his name is Alden Aro. <laughs> and if heaven is any better than, than, than what he has created here, I don't know what on earth it is. Uh, that's so tremendous. We're, we're, we're really not interested. <laughs> and Bob Jones loved that story. He told it over and over again. It was true. It re really was. Um, and so the, the decision to bring Tim in to be with him was, was Alden's idea. Mm -hmm. That was Alden's idea. Mm -hmm. And because he knew it, the, the morning show was getting so complicated with so many elements to it that it was just difficult for one guy to run all the controls and do everything, you know? Right. And right. still be, and still be entertaining on the air. It was amazing. i watching him run that huge console by himself in there. And so he brought Tim in, and I think almost for the first year, Tim just ran the board. Yeah, you know, yeah, yep. and that that freed Alden up to be Alden, and uh, it just lengthened his time, probably by another decade. Sure, it really did. Sure.
So it was a marriage made in heaven, and it really worked. And uh, but what what got me was uh, Tansy was just always willing to try things, and he had this knack of knowing what would work, you know. Hmm. And he was the guy who got behind Miller de Mallard. All right, so let's let's pause, was, let's pause the, let's pause there for a second because I want to kind of like lay out the time frame here a little bit. So right. you arrived at WRVA and got hired in the late 60s, early 70s. Is that about right? I, my first day was, was June. I think it was a, the first, uh, the second week of June, 1968. Okay. And, and I was right, right out of college. And how long were you in kind of in that beginner's role there? How, how long did it take you to start to move up the, the ladder? Oh, or better yet, if you I want was, to fast forward a little bit, how long was it before no, you became no, news director? <laughs> that that was in late 1977, early 78. Okay. So about 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. And by then, um, Tansy had moved the news department out from the program director and made the news department an equal department with all the others. Oh, interesting. And uh, so the news director really ran his own shop now. He didn't have to run it through anybody else Mm -hmm. except Tansy, Hmm. who was a hands-on guy. I think John saw himself as sort of a uh, executive editor. Sure, yep. On a newspaper. I can see that, yep. I I think that would be a a good way to describe his relationship. And he uh, he loved it. He just it was he was like uh, I'm trying to think of his name. Who started uh, big big uh, Reuben Frank was the guy who really did it. But it was the president of NBC at the time. I can't think of his name, but uh, he reminded me a lot. Uh, Tansy reminded me a lot of him. Hmm. Because they had the same philosophy and and great ideas and what would work. And where the chemistry was on the air and everything, and and uh, he was that kind of guy. And frankly, uh, he had gone through like nine news directors in his time <laughs> when he kept insisting that I take the job, and I didn't want it because I liked what I was doing. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, I like I like working in the field. I like chasing down leads and dozing out tips and stuff. I like the game. You know. But he, uh, he, like he always did, I mean, he had his way. And so I, <laughs> I, I traded the fun of chasing down leads and nosing out tips to, you know, just being sort of a guy in a cheap suit who, you know, manipulated people to do things they didn't want to do. <laughs> you know, it was, that, it, it was that kind of thing. But I, I learned a lot from him and I learned a lot from, uh, from Joe Weeks, who was the guy who was who was news director when I arrived there, he hmm. was a tough customer, and uh, but he was always on us, and he he never stopped pushing, and he he was a great guy to work for. He scared the hell out of me at first, but I I really got so I loved the guy, and uh, I learned a lot. I really did. Those years were very informative to me. Yeah. I think it was it was just I learned as much. In the first 10 years there, as I did all of college, 
Yeah, sure. You know, sure. It was it was a great it was a great place to learn journalism because that's exactly what we were doing, and uh, and I think that's why people stayed. Everybody stayed because every it was so exciting. Every day, something new was going to happen. Sure, you just knew it when you walked in there. And you and you had, and you were going to be the, one of the first ones there to cover it. So you know you you, yeah. you made your own excitement. Yeah, yeah. they would. Uh, they did things other stations would not do. Like we sent me up. We had when they call, had a cold strike in Southwest Virginia. He sent me to Dickinson County for three days. Wow. Now, what radio station would do that today? <laughs> None. None. Yep. No, nobody would do that. Yeah. Yeah. When, when we, we went, we, we covered the state democratic convention. Mm. We'd send, we sent Harvey Powers and I to Roanoke, Virginia wow. for like three days. Sure. You know, who does that? Yeah. You know, nobody does that. So I, it, that's why it was, it was so cool to work there because when a story broke, you know we were going to be all over it. We're going to get there early and stay late, and that's the way it was with the floods. And uh, I spent three days in Nelson County covering, covering uh, the James River flood. Yeah. yeah, Three days. I didn't go home. I mean, I stayed there. Wow. Um, slept in my car a couple of nights, but... That was it, it. It was an exciting time. It, 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 we did stuff like that, and it, and and I think by knowing that and participating in it, it just if you're into it, I mean, it just it, you just made you fall in love with the place. You just never wanted to leave. So did your time? And I think that did your time? Yeah, go ahead. Did your time as news director coincide with your time being the the headlines guy on the morning show? Yes. Yeah. I, I, uh, <clears throat> I, I worked a news shift in the morning and, uh, I ran, I ran the shop and I really ran it. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I made the schedules out, decided what needed to be covered and everything. And I went to see Tansy one day and I said, I gotta have a number two. Yeah. I can't stay here. I can't <laughs> come to work. At four o'clock in the morning, yeah, and stay here throughout the day. I, you know, I can do a lot, but I, you know, and he agreed. So he left it up to me, and I hired John Ennis, who was I had met John. He was mm. working down at WTAR in Norfolk for Jim Mays for a long time, mm. covering the military. And he was at that time. I talked to him about coming to RVA. He was running an all news shop for the Providence Journal in Providence, Rhode Island. Hmm. And I called him because I was looking for a, a really good number two, you know. And he told, I'll never forget it. He told me on the phone, I know the perfect guy. I said, really? He said, yeah, I do. I'll have him call you tomorrow. I said, okay. <laughs> phone rings in the, in the newsroom. I pick up the phone. It's Ennis. I said, Ennis. You got your guy there? He said, yeah, it's me. <laughs> I said, oh, you're kidding. He said, no. I'll never forget it. He said, the only thing colder up here than the weather are the people. Uh, that's I got to get back down south, man. So I brought him down, and Tansy, we loved him. And uh, he was my number two for, I think, like 15 years. Yeah. And he wow. could write the hell out of anything. He was a hell of a reporter. He was a great editor. Nobody gave him any gruff. And uh, I think everybody had a lot of respect for him. And we, it was just, 
it just gelled, you know, like what I was saying about the team. We had a, we had a good, smooth team in the newsroom, and everything worked, you know. Not that we didn't have disagreements, violent ones sometimes, but it worked, you know. It all worked. So and I think that's that, that, that's what made what happened to it so difficult to take, yeah. you know. Yep. I, I think that, that had a lot to do with it. For sure, but I don't want to. I don't want to go where you don't want to go right now. So I. But anyway, I. I, well, I don't know I, what I, else I can say. I, I thought it, I thought it was it was the perfect place to be at the perfect time, with the perfect people. I can't I can't say it any better than that. We know? we really probably can. we probably shouldn't move on from this era of the radio station without talking about the eight hundred pound duck in the room. Um, what I don't even know where to start. Um, <laughs> what? What? How? When did you first? All right. So let me back up a little bit. So I, I'm probably you know twenty twenty years your junior, twenty five years your junior. So when I was a kid, and as far as I'm concerned now at forty five years old, Miller the Mallard is real. And when Tim Timberlake passed along your information to me and wrote something in the email along the lines of, and he can probably do Millard for you too, I basically responded with, what are you talking about? Millard's an actual duck and I'll speak to him in due time. So, <laughs> so the, just, can you give us the, the brief history of how and where you met Millard and what Millard became? Uh, I guess Millard was always in my head. Yeah. <clears throat> he was hiding there. And Millard was me when I was a kid. Exactly. Essentially. Uh, he liked banana sandwiches. He tied strings around his ankles. And tie and tied the string to the faucet so he wouldn't go down to drain when they let the water out of the tub, mm. which was me. His mother used to have to do that with me because I was frightened of going down the drain. I liked. I, I'd go out in the rain, and without an umbrella. No, I wouldn't go out in the rain without an umbrella. I just wouldn't, because I didn't like the rain falling on my head. So Millard, of course had to have an umbrella when he went outside and he had to have galoshes and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. He liked cold deliciouses, which was my name for Pepsi Colas or Cokes or mostly Royal Crown Cola. Mm -hmm. Cause my next door neighbor growing up ran the bottling company <laughs> for Royal Crown company. <laughs> That's so, perfect. Which, which explains where all our, all our kids neighborhood teeth brought it out. You know? <laughs> That's all we were doing was guzzling RCs, you know? That's amazing. Um, but, but that was me. That was that was his personality. Mm -hmm. And his team was the Brooklyn Dodgers. And I always bled Dodger blue. And uh, even though the team had moved to LA and that was that was that was Millard's team, you yeah. know? Yeah. He was a diehard fan just like I was. So all this stuff came from me growing up and all the imaginary playmates I had and everything. And uh, that's where all that came from with me. And uh, my dad, who, has, who was an artist, uh, he was a salesman, but his true vocation was he was a painter and an illustrator. 
he did the town seal, which is now in use, still in use in Emporia. Huh. And uh, that that's who he really was. And uh, I think a little bit of him rubbed off on me. Sure. But I, I was, I, I grew up in a very artistic family. Hmm. Um, my sister June got very famous on television and made several movies, one which was a pretty good hit. And uh, Barbara was a fine artist who lived on what she she painted. And mother wrote poetry. Dad finally found his true vocation, which was as a woodcarver. And he was a painter and illustrator. And so that's that's how I grew up. And, um, and- I didn't have any special talent until I... Uh, as as father said, you know, people who can't paint become photographers. So mm. that's what I did. Mm. Um, and I found out I was, I was pretty good at it and I could make some money at it. So that's what I did later in life. And that's what I do now. But mm. anyway, it was a very artistic family and, and uh, we were all pushed to find our, our true calling. And I, I don't think that happens in many families, but we, that's what we were, and uh, mother especially, but dad also. We, we, the arts were very important in our family, and that's what everybody did. All of us went to work in some branch of the arts, mm-hmm. loosely used, mm-hmm. you know, but um, that's where all that came from. So Millard was me, and uh, dad had, had drawn a lot of cartoons, almost went to work for Disney in the 30s at Bonavista Studios as an animator. Oh, wow. But he couldn't leave the family because it was depression time. He couldn't leave. Mm. So he, he had to pass it up. But he was he was a great illustrator, and he used to draw a lot of, you know, Donald Duck cartoons for us when we were little and everything. And So I, got, I don't know. I guess that's where that came from. And then I, I, I came up with a name. Millard, because I thought Millard was a kind of cute name. Yeah. And uh, he really came alive when Tansy uh, sent me to see Jack Woodson. Jack was an illustrator and at Carmine Graphics at the time in Richmond. Yeah. And uh, probably the most talented guy I've ever met in my life. And I went to see Jack, and he didn't draw Millard. He accept, uh, accepted the assignment to come up with a graphic representation of Miller de Mallard. And Jack, to give you a quick background, was the guy who came up with the Marlboro Man. He oh, did all geez. the paintings. Yeah, he, he was incredible. I think today he's thought of, you know, right there in the top tier of famous illustrators, American illustrators. Number one, of course, is, is uh, Rockwell. But uh, Norman Rockwell, but uh, Jack Woodson's right up there with him. He's long dead now, but Jack didn't draw Millard. He made him. He made a construction of him in his studio about three and a half feet tall. And he made him, which gave him dimensions. And then he shot him. He shot him with with his cameras, and uh, which gave him shadows and made him look like he was alive. Hmm. And uh, that's where that picture of Millard came from. We got it trademarked and copyrighted, and we must have we must have had 5,000 iron-ons made for T-shirts. 
and all that stuff. I probably I mean, owned you know, one at one point. I'm sure you probably did. Yeah. You know, we gave them away by we gave them away by the thousands. <laughs> um, but Jack came up with all of that and and really saved me. He put me onto ship modeling, which is I I, I, I practiced until I got my eyes went south and I had I had to get some eye surgery done and everything. But he was a very talented guy and uh I love working with him. He was he was just great. It was no no easy task either because he had our aim was to get it trademarked, so he had to stay away from all these characters that are trademarked. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, you know mm-hmm. Woody Woodpecker and Donald Duck and Daffy Duck and all the Looney Tunes characters, all these so it was a tough assignment, but he came out with it, and we finally got it trademarked in 1975. Meantime, all this had gotten very serious, right? And uh, I was still on the air doing both, which Tansy insisted I keep doing, but he wanted to protect my reputation as a news person, mm. and he wanted to get out because number one, he said, you know. If, if they find out it's you, the theater of the mind is gone. Exactly. They're going to they're gonna see you. We, we can't let it go. So he, he made everybody swear in the radio station. Thou shalt not ever reveal Harding is Millard. Wow. And if you do, there are going to be supreme consequences for you. Yeah. So he put the fear of God in everybody, and everybody kept their mouth shut. Amazingly, it lasted. Until I left, after wow. I left. You wow. Know? So all this was going on, and it got very serious. And John told me, he said, we need to set up a corporation to protect your namesake and your ownership. He never he never questioned that I owned the character. That mm-hmm. was never an issue with him. Hmm. Matter of fact, he was, he was opposite. He insisted that I get a lawyer. And set up a corporation so my name wouldn't have to be on the pictures as the creator. The corporate name would be. So the station's attorney who was on retainer, Roy Campbell, called me one night. Roy was a very highly respected lawyer in the Richmond legal circles. He was. And uh, he came by to see me and he said, I want to be Millard's lawyer. I think it'll be fun. That's great. And I told him, I said, I said, but you, you, you represent the radio station. That's a conflict of interest. He said, well, I'll tell you what, I won't let that happen. But if at any time that you're not comfortable with what I'm doing, I will defer to my partner. I think his name was Drew Carnell. And uh, I'll step aside. Mm. I'll excuse myself. And so I said, okay. Well, he never did. And he was wonderful. He became one of my very best friends. I don't know what I would have done without him when my mother died. You know, Mm. he was wonderful. And uh, he loved being Millard's lawyer. (laughs) He loved it. Because he got a lot of gas from people in Richmond and legal circles. And he just loved, he loved telling everybody in a Richmond bar that he was Miller to Mallard's lawyer. That's tremendous. You know? That's tremendous. Yeah. <laughs> so we, that, that's when it started getting really serious, and we started showing up in the rating books, and Millard eventually became the most recognized personality in Richmond. Wow. 
right up there with Alden yeah. and Timberlake. Yeah. And uh, so I, Roy had told me early on when we started all this, he said, you know, I, I think this is going to, this is going to really enhance your standing at the radio station. Because he said, I just got a feeling about it. Well, he was, he was right. It did. And I have no doubt that I lasted as long as I did because of Millard. You so, know, I, I, I was, I was, I had two things going for me. There was me and there was Millard to Mallard, yeah, you know? Yeah. And they didn't want, and they didn't want to risk it. Millard, Millard became the station's mascot. We bought costumes. He started making appearances everywhere. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, all that stuff. And uh, if you were growing up in Richmond then, I mean, you, Oh, I, I probably ran into him somewhere. One hundred percent. I I remember the mascots. I I probably had that iron on T shirt at one point in time. I mean, I was. I, I, it, truth, truth be told, I was probably always was Alden number one, Miller number two. Don't tell uh, Timberlake he's probably number three. Um, but you know, but that <laughs> yeah. that. That that was you know Miller the Mallard Alden Arrow Tim Timberlake Alan Alda like that was my childhood those are the voices of my childhood so um, it's uh yeah I, I bet you were sitting by the radio when it snowed praying your school would close you know I I know many many kids who've grown up have told me you know I can remember sitting by that radio and Alden doing school closing absolutely. Praying to God that he would. <laughs> <laughs> you just wait, wait. I would. I, I lived in Henrico County, so I you, when you when you get to Hanover, I knew I was next. You know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that I mean that yeah. really was like and and that in 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 my in my mind you know and and the idealization of childhood, you know I would go to bed listening to Jerry Lund yell at callers um, on on his show. You know that's what I would yeah. fall asleep to. Um, and then I would wake up to, you know, Alden and Tim and you and, and Miller, and then I'd be off to school and then it'd be, you know, back home. And once dinner was over, I'd be heading to bed and Jerry was back on again. Uh, you know, Chuck, yeah. you know, Chuck no on sun, Sunday nights. Like I knew nothing about sports still don't really, but I loved listening to Chuck no talk about UVA basketball. Just, I, you know, well, he, he, he became probably, um, he and Alden were, were two of my best friends, and uh, Chuck Chuck was the most incredible motivator I've ever been around. I've never been around anybody like him. I mean, he you could be you could be a puddle of depression, and he he'd raise <laughs> you from the dead. I mean, I, I I said at his funeral that I can't imagine all the hearts and minds he he saved. At uh, the schools he coached at, mm. uh, and kids who would play their heart out for him, I said, "If you were around him for just five minutes, you'd understand why." Mm. Because he was always up; he was never down. And I, I know he had moments when he, you know, when he was down and didn't feel one hundred percent. We all do, but he's—he seemingly never did. Mm. He was always—he was always a super guy. Alton was the same way. Yeah. Alden was always up. He was always on. I mean, he, I never saw Aero when he followed. Even when he was dying of cancer, I'd go see him and we'd sit on his back porch and he was thinking of the radio station down the road. Mm. You know, he was, it was a hell of a guy. Um, so let's, I want to talk a little bit about the, uh, 
Alden's last day on the air, because um, I, I meant to ask him about this and 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 didn't. Um, what, I mean, that that was truly the end of an era at that radio station. Like you said, he had been there since you've been on the morning show since 1956, and he retired in what yeah. 1992 or 1993. 1993, just before he died. Yeah, yeah. What yeah. was the? What do you yeah. remember of that day? Very tough day. I yeah. uh, I went on on the air with Tim the next morning, and I felt really out of place because mm. uh, uh, I think I wrote in the book the presence of his absence was just everywhere. You know, mm. you 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 couldn't walk in that studio or the radio station without without him being there. You mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. And it, it was always that way, but he had insisted he wanted me to go on the air with Tim, and I and I didn't feel good about it because I I felt it should be Tim's show, mm-hmm. and uh, but Alden sensed that the radio station was going to have to have a greater presence in news in the morning, even more so than we were, and I think he saw that coming. And that's what that was all about. But it was it was a very tough time. We didn't know, <clears throat> for example, we didn't know, I didn't know what to do about Miller to Mallard. I mm. had no idea what to do about it. Yeah. So not knowing, I <clears throat> I was talking with Tansy one night on the phone. He said, what do you think? And I said, I think Miller needs to go up to Goose Bay for a few weeks, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't have to think about it. And he said, I, I, I agree. I said, and, and, and shake out, and, and you'll get reaction, and you'll hear things, and that'll give you a, an idea of where you need to go with it. And he was right, as always. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. So <clears throat> we brought Millard back on air with Tim and I, and the show went on for another, wow, almost 10 years Yeah. <clears throat> with, uh, with Tim and I. So... And Millard, so, and then and then Clear Channel decided to blow the place up, and and you know what happened. And I, I'll tell you, I was so angry when I left about it. I, I always had the idea of writing a book, and I sat down to do it, and I found I was just too angry. Hmm. I couldn't do it because hmm. that's all that was going to come out of me. I was so angry about it. And so I put it off for a long time and uh, finally got around to it around 2014, 15. My sister talked me into it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's that's how that all came about. But getting back to Alden, that was, that was very tough. It was unbelievable. And then his daughter came up to the radio station and said, I want you to do the eulogy, which just, I mean, you know, was he he, pa- he passed very very shortly after his last day on the air? What didn't he? Oh yeah, yeah. He <clears throat> he left uh, maybe a month. Wow. I mean, he went downhill. Downhill fist. Well, he didn't. He didn't take anything. Oh. You know, he didn't. He they could have extended his life. I mean, he could have taken the. You know, he could have done the chemotherapy, but he didn't. He didn't do it. Yeah. He didn't do it. He 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 told me because uh, he he talked about all this and, and he he came up to the radio station the day he was diagnosed and I went out to the car about kill me when he told me. I said I don't want you to tell anybody because I want to keep working 
and they're not going to let me keep working. And I don't want everybody feeling sorry for me. Mm -hmm. So you got to keep your damn mouth shut. (laughs) I said, I will. It's going to be hard. And Jerry was in, my wife was in, it was in um, medicine at the time. She was, she was in a branch of pathology and I went home that day and she could see I was really upset. And she said, what is it? Is it Alden? And I said, because we knew he had gone in for tests. Yeah. I said, yeah. I said, he's got the big C. And uh, it was in his, uh, his lung and it metastasized to his liver. Mm. And uh, I asked her, I said, how long do you think he's got? And she said, is he going to have any intervention? Is he going to do chemotherapy? I said, no. He says he's not. She said, three months maximum and she was right almost to the day wow and uh it was a very tough time yeah i mean it really was it was and doing that eulogy about kill me but i got through it Mm -hmm. and uh anna lou insisted his daughter that i do it and she said i don't want you I don't want it to be more, but I want you to make people laugh. I want you to talk about him like he really was. And so I did. And I remember the rector at St. Paul's came up to me. (laughs) He said, good job. He said, but I have to tell you, Mr. Harding, I think this is the first time anybody ever talked about having iron-ons on their underwear (laughs) in a eulogy. (laughs) I said, well... I said, Reverend, he asked for it. And he said, he did. He said, I knew him. He said, I loved it. I thought it was great. So, I, you so know, and, and I was expecting you to say that's the first time anyone's ever done a duck voice in a eulogy. Uh, did, that, did that happen or no? No, I, I didn't do that. But I, I talked about him. Uh, I talked about him. We didn't. They, I lived in Brandermill, and they didn't allow clotheslines in Brandermill. So mm. this this gives you a side of Alden that you didn't see a lot. So he and his his wife Frances, we had gone home to Emporia uh, to visit my parents, and Alden and Frances snuck out to our house one night, put up a clothesline, <laughs> and Alden hung up. Alden hung up his box of shorts, and on the and on the rear end he had put iron-ons of pillar to mallard on each cheek. Oh, that's cheek. tremendous. So, so we, Jerry and I get back, and the next morning I wake up, and I look out the bedroom window, and there, there are these humongous bras of gigantic t-shirts <laughs> and and drawers with Miller to mallards, you know, the iron-on on the, on oh, the butt. And, and, uh, and Jerry just looked out the window, and she said, it's Aaron. You know it is. And I said, oh, yeah. Because he, he had made a big scene at our house about not being allowed to have clothes lines. He thought it was un-American. That's then, tremendous. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, that is a true story. That's the kind of guy he was. He was a great practical joker. He really was. He's a hell of a guy, and I miss him to this day. I really do. Because yeah. we, we went on vacations together. We did a lot of stuff together and uh, went fishing a lot. and. All that kind of thing. Yeah, he was a great friend. I, I, everybody needs a everybody needs a friend like that. You know, I, I miss everybody I miss him too. And and you know, and, and to me, he was just a disembodied voice through the radio. But he was uh, he was a big part of my childhood, and so were you. So 
Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. I really do. Because, uh, and I and I appreciate, uh, like I told you in that email, I don't get many pulls on the social cord when you get to my, I'm 77 now. Yeah. And uh, so all this is, I, I can't believe it's been, it's been 20 years since I left. It'll be 20 years next year. You know, that's unbelievable to me. Well, I got to tell you, I, I, I read Radio Ingleside, so, you know, I, and, and Miller told us in the last episode how he felt about how things ended there. Um, um, and, and I, like I said, I read, I, you know, I, I read the book, so I know how you felt about it, and I, I didn't want to go out necessarily on a down note. Um, but in, in hindsight, in hindsight, would you... Would you have left sooner if you knew how it was going to end? Uh, you know, I, I think Timberlake and I talked about that. And um, as long as he was on the air and we, we, were, we were doing our thing, I think we were going to stay. Mm. But Bloomquist kept pushing, pushing the envelope and he, he didn't like Tim on the air for some reason. Mm. He wanted to... He wanted news, just news. I told him it wasn't going to work, but uh, that's what he—that's what he did. And when Tim left, uh, Lou had left. There was nobody. There was nobody there. Yeah, for me anymore. The yeah. team was gone. And um, at the time that Tim left, I wasn't in a position to leave, so I kept working for another couple of months. And then that April. Um, Jerry uh, sidelined as a uh, a day trader in the stock market. And she was huh. very good at it, and uh, she had she had told me when Clear Channel bought the station, she said uh, they have a four hundred one k. You should buy their stock on the side. I said, you think? She said, oh yeah, hmm. buy it, invest in the place. Because you'll know what's happening. Mm-hmm. You're in a position to know what they're doing. And so I did. And I never regretted it. And she called me one day at work. And she said, uh, she watched CNBC all day. She watched that ticker all day. She always <laughs> had her computer up. And she was trading. And she called me and she said, uh, they just had a guy on from, uh, they had uh, Larry, Larry Mays, who was the CEO of Clear Channel. And of course, he had his family in positions of authority. So she called me and she said, uh, uh, Larry May's oldest son was interviewed by Barron's on CNBC. And he said that Clear Channel was in the eighth inning of acquisitions. And she said, I felt I needed to tell you because the stock has started tanking. And I think you need to get out. Hmm. And she said, you agree? I said, well, yeah, because the only way they're growing the company is by buying stations and there's nothing left on the table. Mm-hmm. That's what he's saying. Yeah. And so I called my broker and I got out. And uh, boy, what a fortuitous decision that was because uh, that's how I managed to leave when I did. And I would have been miserable saying Bloomquist tried to get me to stay for another two weeks, but I wouldn't. I mm-hmm. said, no, nah, train's left, man. I'm on the train. I'm I'm out of here. So, so I was so I was so angry when I left, and uh, but you know, having 
20 years to think about it in hindsight. <laughs> I think I think Lou was was correct. I think that, that was going to happen anyway because I think the die was cast when they when they they deregulated radio. Right. And uh, you know, I think I think we all knew it was going to happen. We didn't want to believe it, but I but it did. You know, so I think it was going to happen. It happened to all the great stations, WMAQ in Chicago and all of them. You know, they've all gone that the same way. So it was it was a great time to be in the business, but I wouldn't want to be in it now. I just wouldn't. I don't think it would be any fun, but I, I don't know. And, you know, I don't know because I don't listen. I don't. <laughs> I don't. I, uh, I, no, I can't tell I'm, you. The last, I'm right there I, with you. I, I, I don't know the last time I cut the radio on. Maybe yeah. to uh, PBS station, but I spend my days listening to uh, jazz mostly. I'm yeah. a big jazz fan. Yeah. But that's mostly how I, what I listen to now. I don't watch much TV either. So, well, you so were... anyway, that's a, that's a story. And I, I, um, I appreciate your thinking of me. And, uh, I had a great time there. I um, I uh, I wouldn't take anything for it. Author of Radio Ingleside, former WRVA news director, former morning news guy for Aldenaro and Tim Timberlake on WRVA. And yes, I'll admit it, the voice of Millard the Mallard, John Harding. Thanks to John for taking time out to speak to me. Uh, right before he I actually made him... <laughs> I feel kind of bad. I made him late getting dinner on the table for his wife. So my apologies to uh, to your wife, John. I, I hope your I hope her dinner wasn't too late. Um, in between my conversation with Millard and John, uh, John gave a little extra insight on the origins of Millard the Mallard, and I wanted to play that for you real quick. It, it was great fun to do. It started completely as a gag. I remember Alden was talking about something he did over the weekend, speaking to Ducks Unlimited Group, and and that's how it, it all started. And I I did a couple of quacks in the background, and John Tansy heard it and uh, mentioned it the next morning, and we started getting calls, and uh, that's how it started. You know, it, it was just a, it was just a damn gag, and it. It got very serious. It sure did, and you can learn more about that in John's book, Radio Ingleside, available to download and purchase. I got my copy uh, on Amazon through the Kindle. Thanks again to John and to Millard, for that matter. As for next week's guest, I've gotten to speak to people that I grew up listening to. John Harding, Millard the Mallard, Tim Timberlake, uh, Bill Bevins. Um People that I worked with, like Leslie Taylor and Lori Kelly, but were in the building before I was. You know, Leslie was at that radio station forever before I got there. I'm not saying you're old, Leslie. It's just you were there forever. I haven't spoken to any of my contemporaries just yet, people who I came up in radio with, not listening to, but actually with. Nothing's set in stone. Nothing's recorded just yet. But next week, I should have my first contemporary Richmond radio guest. And he is a guy who I've worked with a couple of times. Most notoriously, he and I put a brand new Richmond radio station on the air. So if everything goes according to plan, I'll speak to him next week. Not going to tell you who it is, just in case it doesn't happen. My, 
<laughs> this is the part of the podcast where I tell you everybody that was involved in putting this thing together, and it was me. My name is Chris Paget. Thanks for listening.